RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. You've heard about plenty of people suffering mandates. We've talked to nurses, we've talked to teachers, we've talked to caregivers, we've talked to military. Now, you may remember that case uh, last year where the police were involved with frontline law, representing just over 160 in a case which actually came out positively for them. But that's not the end of the story. So Tony Hawke was in the police force and was one of those number that I just mentioned that were being represented in that case. And he joins us to talk about his experience because we think these stories need to be told and heard. Tony, welcome to Reality Check Radio. It's great to have you. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, It's great. Great what you, you guys have done and you're doing. So thank you. No, thank you for coming on and thank you for your service when you're in the police. What made you want to be a policeman? Uh, well, um, I guess I joined pretty uh, a, a little bit later on when I was 28 and I was working at the airport uh, at the time. Uh, just just the challenges, I, I suppose. I knew uh, I was on a I was on a bit of a um, groundhog day kind of job, so something that I knew was going to be uh, every day was going to be uh, different and challenging, and um, a whole lot of scope to do different roles, of course. Um, it turn out that way. <laughs> I bet it did. Uh, it, it did. It did for 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 most of it, for the vast majority of the the, the twenty years. Absolutely, twenty yeah. years. That's a stretch, man. Twenty years. Yeah, I just made uh, just made twenty years before I resigned in April of last year. And whereabouts were you? And sort of what level did you get to? Were you just out in the patrol cars? Tell us what your role was. Uh, I was a senior constable. So after 14 years, you become a, a senior constable. Um, my last role, I was only in my last role, uh, a secondment for a couple of months, uh, only two months before the uh, August 21 lockdown. Yeah. So I was only in that role for a short time. Uh, that was supported resolutions uh, to do with uh, Oranga. Um Prior to that, that was a secondment. I was a road policing officer, so a traffic cop for about eleven years. So you've uh, seen every every version of anything that happens on the road, and every excuse in the book. I'm picking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of uh, crashes and uh, bad crashes and fatal crashes, and um, no, should, over, over that time, of course, it's very serious. Yeah. And did you see you yourself doing that for the like the rest of your career? Was that your your aim? I I certainly because I was new to a role that only lasted a few months. Uh, but I was certainly going to stay in the police for another five years before uh, retirement or resigning. Um, is what I thought at the time, uh, and who knows what what would have happened. Well, we all know what happened. This mm. whole thing came along. Were you involved in any of the policing side of it during, I guess, the time up to you leaving the force? Did you have to go out there and sort of partake in the policing of what lockdowns and, and all the things that went with it? Uh, yes. Um, initially in uh, 2020, uh, when it first kicked off in the first lockdown, then I was a road policing officer then and was involved in the checkpoints and checking people's uh, movements and if they uh, were allowed to be going and checking if they were a uh, a uh, worker. I can't remember the term now. Um, yeah, essential yeah. worker. That's right, yeah. I was uh, one of those, by the way. Mm, mm. I don't know why. 
Yeah, so I was. Um, yeah. So I was involved in that in, in the first year, uh, 2020. Um, the following year, 20, uh, August 21, when there was the other outbreak and further lockdowns, I was um, in my new role, but I was seconded to go back to a frontline position and shift work doing those checkpoints or um, assisting with the COVID response or um, MIQ, going to the MIQ facilities. Um, How did that feel doing that? Well, in 21, I um, I got a medical exemption from doing that, so I was able to um, continue doing my role at home on a laptop and, and phone. But in 2020, I mean, we didn't know really what the outcome was going to be was prior to a vaccine rolling out, of course. Did you feel uncomfortable, though, with, you know, the whole concept of people being locked down and then you having to go out and police that? Yeah, I was uncomfortable with that. I didn't, um, of course, not what anybody joins the police for. And, um, yeah, restricting movements. And as it turned out, it was very hard to police and, and enforce because, you know, the vast majority of people we were stopping were essential workers and were allowed, you know, and if they weren't, they just said they were going to the supermarket because you're allowed to do that, whether they were or not. So it became pointless, really. What about your colleagues? How do they feel about, you know, all this, uh, the culture of the police? How did they react to this? Well, it was such a bizarre time. I, you know, I'm sure most, you know, believed that it was required that they were doing what was needed like most of the population, I guess. Yeah, we've seen quite a bit of footage, though, not necessarily from here, but from uh, a lot from Australia, where police were very non-negotiable about things. They were very tough policing the whole thing, well, some of them anyway, in quite a harsh way. Did you see any of that here? Not to the same extent, I think. Uh, fortunately, our policing style was was you know different to Australia, and they were handing out some uh, incredibly high fines. Yeah, five grand ago. Yeah, yeah, which we weren't. I mean, um, people would, would would be warned several times over here before, and then it went straight to a prosecution. They were they were prosecuted and had to go to court for the courts or for the judge to um, really not take any action anyway. So it was a bit of a game. For a while there, wasn't yeah. it? A bit of a show thing, and that was about all. Not much to it behind the scenes. Yeah. I've certainly heard from friends a bit who were at a park with their kids and a police officer coming along to where I live, the town where I live, to tell her to um, she had to return home. You know, she was at a park outside with her, with her children. So there were certainly um, there's all sorts of um, different styles and personalities in the police, of course. So some some would have been over the top like that, others uh, less so. What about the hierarchy, you know, the higher echelons of the police service in New Zealand? What was coming down from above? Well, very much the government uh, narrative was uh, absolutely, yeah, whatever the Jacinda Ardern or the government had decided um, was going to happen, it was it was quickly implemented and um, the directions coming down to the staff were very black and white and to follow the all the new legislation being introduced, the COVID response plan. Yeah, very, very black and white and very, um, yeah, just following the government's direction, of course. When did you start to get the feeling that this could be a bit of a tight spot for you? 
Yeah, I guess I um, I had my head in the sand a, a little bit in denial for a little bit, and of course it was it was coming up to November twenty one when the mandates it was being discussed in the media and by uh, the police association, Chris Carhill, about whether police were going to be uh, mandated and what that meant and how many were going to be affected and what that meant to uh, the police service. So, yeah, at that point it was coming clear that um, it was going to come to a head. You know, I was holding holding out hope that, um, you know, some common sense would prevail and um, and it would all uh, it would blow over, but of course it didn't. What um, were the police association, Chris Carhill, you mentioned him, I think I heard him numerous times through this, and he seemed very supportive of the the government and uh, the police hierarchy and what they were doing, and he was kind of in there too. Did you get any support or any sympathy or anything from them? Uh, no, no, but basically. Um, so they're your know, union, right? Of, and no, they're your union, you've been paying in the dues, and they're not, they don't have your back, that's what you say. Not some... What to do with COVID? He, um, yeah, he was very much, as you say, on, on the side of the, the police commissioner and the government, and um, that the mandates were necessary. Um, his concern, he, he had been in the media, it was in the Police Association magazine at the time, coming up to uh, the mandates being introduced. That at that time, 1700 staff, I think that's the sworn staff, 1700 were not vaccinated coming up to that time even though, you know, the vaccine rollout, they were available for several months, four or five months by that point. Uh, so, yeah, he made comments that um, if, it, if it remains that number, then he was had real concerns about, you know, that would be catastrophic for the police capability and service. Yeah. But he didn't say just drop it. No, no, no. He certainly uh, was of the same view as the government and the police commissioner that, um that it was important and necessary for staff to be vaccinated. Do you want your union dues repaid back? Well, yeah, yeah I would like to. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't. I don't think so either. <laughs> okay, so that's quite a high number, 1,700. So was there then a sort of like a big effort to get people over the line in quite a short time? Did the pressure come down? I'm sure it did uh, with supervisors. I mean, I wasn't... I was working uh, at home from that time, so I wasn't really even at the station. Right. Were colleagues, your colleagues, or, or were police staff starting to coalesce around the two positions to take it or not take it? And did you have anything to do with that? Was there a, like a one side versus the other that started to develop? It was certainly always a minority of um, staff who didn't want to be vaccinated, I think. Um yeah, I mean, I didn't. I wasn't really having those conversations. I wasn't around the staff anymore. I was uh, working from home, and and it wasn't discussed a lot. I mean, it was already quite a divisive sort of topic. You know, staff were getting booked in to go and get vaccinated because they because they wanted to, or they they thought they needed to. At the same time, I I probably joined the Telegram group, and there was a um, group of the, the affected staff were um, discussing the mandates the um, affected stuff. So when did it become clear that you had this big choice you had to make in the form of a letter? Is that what came through? Uh, yeah, yeah, a letter and, uh, yeah, emailed to us from um, the police executive 
that uh, when the mandates were announced, that was November of 21. Then there was a consultation period of um, what that was going to mean um, and how we could work around that. Consultation yeah, I mean, period. Was it a genuine consultation or is that just saying the right things to... Well, I mean, I think it was a, um, a ticking the box exercise. The organisation and the um, HR departments uh, had to had to show that, that they were doing that um, consultation around why you were choosing not to be vaccinated. If there was uh, any discussions you wanted to have, if you needed to talk to a welfare officer, then, you know, that was offered to you. Um, how your role might be, um, could be adjusted so you could work from home or work remotely because the mandates were announced in November. It wasn't until January that we uh, I was served a, a January 22 that I was served a, a termination letter uh, that gave me a month, I think, to either start getting vaccinated or I would be um, terminated from the police. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? It was, yeah, it was. Um, a district commander came to my house to serve that letter in person and at the same time he, he took away my police phone, uh, uniform I had at home, ID. So yeah, the so the yeah. district commander turns up at your house to do this. The district commander. Yeah, it was organised. The you know uh, an appointment made. Right. Yeah, and I agreed to him coming around. Um, he wasn't he wasn't welcome uh, in my house, <laughs> so he served me the letter on my uh, on my front porch, and we had a brief discussion. But yeah, bizarre, absolutely bizarre. How was he? Was he? Embarrassed to be there, or I suppose being a district commander of a police force, you you probably you know um, know how to to be in these situations. But was he matter of fact? Was he sympathetic? I'm presuming it's a he. Um, matter of fact, sympathetic. So sorry. What was his demeanour like? Just interested. Oh, uh, to his credit, he was very um, humble, but also very matter of fact. Of course, it was. A matter of fact that um, he was only doing what um, what he had to do. We had a short conversation about you know what my plans would be, and that um, at some point in the future, when the vaccine mandates were gone, he would uh, hope that I'd return to the police. Okay, well that's I guess at least something. Yeah, to, to his credit, and he was a district commander who uh, wanted to always uh, speak to someone face-to-face, um, especially in terms of uh, uh, disciplinary matters, which uh, which this became, I guess. Yeah, isn't that crazy that that becomes a yeah. disciplinary matter? This ridiculous, mm. laughable. How many visits on doorsteps do you think this chap made? Uh, well, this was in the Waikato district. I'm not, I, I'm not certain, but uh, there was certainly, he was certainly going to at least one or two others in the district. Yeah, maybe going to another one the same day as mine. I'm unsure yeah. of the numbers. I'm just wondering how many of these people had to get around and you know how that made them feel is really what I'm thinking. So you get this formal thing on the doorstep and you get the email and everything, so you kind of resign yourself to it's all over. I would have felt a bit angry about that if, if it was me. Yeah, yeah, I certainly I had the whole gambit of emotions um, through this time. My wife was really badly affected by what um, what we were all going through, myself and our family. Um, yeah, so there's certainly um, 
times of depression and certainly times of anger. Yes. So you're faced with the prospect then of no job, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, it was. Um, it was going to be February, end of February, I think, was the termination date. We knew at that stage, or or shortly afterwards, that there there would be an appeal by frontline law. Yeah. Yeah, the way things were going, I, I personally didn't hold out any hope for that. I absolutely thought it would um, it wouldn't be overturned in the High Court as it was. And uh, you were one of the group represented there. Did you mix and match with many others who were involved in this as well? Uh, yeah, well, discussions on the Telegram group. There was uh, a bunch of affected members uh, discussing it through that forum, talking about. Uh, we supplied affidavits for the court, for the lawyers, for the um, as part of that process. Did you hear anything from colleagues? Like, I mean, I spoke to, um, I should have mentioned it, uh, the uh, ambulance guy from the St John's who got mandated out and then they carried on using his picture and videos to promote themselves after they'd mandated him out, such as the madness here. And, you know, he had limited contact, just a few of his colleagues who he was down in the trenches with for quite some time, like you, attending, you know, bad situations, sort of bonding in those situations. And all of a sudden those bonds were broken. Did you have a similar experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a pretty small station where I worked, only, you know, 12, 14 staff, I guess, in total. And, um, yeah, from that station, only one cop who I had worked with, yeah, reached out to me to contact me to see how we were, what my plans were, how it was going. Uh, so that was telling. <laughs> it's not an unfamiliar story, Tony. No, uh, no, the heartlessness that sort of came into the heart of heart kind of thing that so many people, I don't know, good people suddenly became like that. Yeah, there was very much the the feeling of um, I wasn't being a team player doing that. I was being troublesome or, you know, and just to, I'm sure the viewpoint was, why don't they just get the vaccine? And I, that, that's been said to us several times, just, just get the vaccine and, you know, the problems, your problems are over. What's, what's the issue? Yeah, it's very much the mindset, I think. Not very deep thinking, is it? No, um, no, no, it's not. Okay, so what do you do when, because you've never, I'm sure, in all your thinking ever thought that you'd end up in a situation like this. So how did you get through? Well, thankfully, I think the following, the week after receiving that letter, I went to the um, Wellington protest with my uh, younger son. He was 12 years old at the time um, and with uh, friends and their children. And so, so grateful and so glad that we did that. I've heard it discussed on, on your show, uh, people who had been there and then discussing the, the feelings and just... Um, it just changed their lives, we, Tony. It changed their lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely changed. Uh, well, just to give us some, uh, gave us some hope for humanity, you know, to see, felt, uh, of course, me and my family, and we felt very secluded and... Uh, as if you're battling this by yourself and just to go there and see, you know, thousands of people, thousands of people daily, they're just um, talking and listening and hugging each other and just, yeah, I mean, it was just a, a, a celebration really. 
and um, just knowing that there were so many people, um, so many people like that. And and it wasn't about, and it wasn't even about the vaccine. I think there were some studies done at the time, and maybe 50 percent of all the people there were vaccinated. Yeah, had done everything that was asked of them, but they they were there protesting about um, it being mandated. And nurses, of course, doctors, ambulance officers, police, fire staff, defence force being going to lose their job over at the time when we needed all of those staff, all of those occupations on deck, of course. And, of course, you know the way it was portrayed in the, here we go again, mainstream media. It yep. was completely demonised. Oh, yeah. And I, um, and that was another reason why I, I just had to go because I, I I knew that that was false. What was on the the mainstream media, of course, and seeing uh, Chantal Baker's feeds and footage showing what the what the truth was. Um, yeah, that was part of the reason. Really, I had to go. Um, yeah, those those feeds will go down in history. Actually, mm. they, mm. they will become. Maybe people don't realize it now. I know you, you probably realize it. I do because I was glued to them. I wasn't there. I wanted to be there. Probably I could have, but um, I'm doing my thing now. But I watched those feeds, and I remember thinking at the time, one day this is going to be taught in class. Oh, yeah, and just how powerful on the final day when they they brutally ended the protest, um, just so powerful and um, and emotional, wasn't it, watching that? I was at home by that stage, back at home, but, yeah. I'm speaking with mandated ex-senior constable Tony Hawke. Did you, well, given your experience, um, did you know that was inevitable, it was coming? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, staff on, tele- you know, the people on Telegram who are still working for the police, and, yeah, it was, it was obvious it was going to come to a head like that. How difficult and- would it have been for those... I get to ask a police officer this, so I'm going to take the opportunity. How difficult would it have been for those officers there ready to, you know, bring it to a close, let's say? Would they have been conflicted? Would they have? I'm sure, I'm sure a lot were, um, but I'm, I'm also sure a lot, a lot were relishing it. Um, all of all of those that were believing the mainstream media and believing what the police commissioner uh, was saying in the media about the protest, um, and having to be there for that period and uh, having to go and stand out in a line for however long they were standing there, a section would go out in front of the beehive, stand there looking at the protesters, the protesters looking back. Yeah, I think a lot must have must have felt like felt that way. Um, but equally, I think a lot relished it. Well, you could Relish. see that in the footage, couldn't you? Absolutely, absolutely, a lot did. I've heard, I don't know if this is true, I've heard a lot of those staff who, who went in, in the right gear were from corrections, were corrections officers. Oh, okay. Put into police uniforms uh, because correction officers had much better training in riot control and extracting prisoners and violent prisoners from cells, et cetera, that they had, um, they had extensive training. Um, well, wait on, is that, is that allowed? Is that legal? I, I don't know. And like I said, I don't know. That's, that's what I heard at the time. And um, wouldn't put it past them. 
Yeah, it, yeah, it makes sense because the there was talk, you know, in the grapevine that something was happening. That um, there was a lot of training, right, right training going on at the police college in Wellington in the week or the days leading up to the the end. What do you make of the police commissioner? You don't have to answer this, but I've never heard a good thing said about this guy. No, he's um he's um absolutely on the um the woke agenda. So he's a wokester. Is he's a wokester? One of them. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, well, I, I think it I think it's well known that um him and Jacinda Ardern were very close and very uh, much on the same page. Yeah, I mean, you, you get to um, you get to a commissioned officer um, position in the police, and you be- and it becomes political. Of course, you're more of a politician than a than a police officer, and and um, he is absolutely a politician first and foremost. Yeah, because he said he thought they did a great job. The uh, Independent Police Conduct Authority report we picked it apart on our Legal Hub show, and while they were trying to put a sort of like a slightly oblique spin on it to (laughs) hide the gold, let's say. Um, It made them look like Keystone Cops, actually. Oh, so much. And and like you say, those other feeds from independent Chantel and independent people there just just showed that, just showed the nastiness of uh, a lot of officers. I'm not the majority, I'm sure, but uh, a number. Um, Footage of um, police. I mean, they... (laughs) They were picking up bricks that had been hurled at them, but they're picking up bricks and hurling them back at the protesters. I mean, just unbelievably. Well, they're making excuses in the report to say that, you know, for example, Chantel got shot in the face with a fire extinguisher, which caused all sorts of problems. And that's mm-hmm. because they didn't have adequate equipment. Well, what? So what, do you go around and pick up anything you can find and whack someone with it? Yeah, well, so much of the police policy that had been in place for decades was just um, was just ignored and just turfed out. I mean, I, I'd done training for crowd control and sort of riot. Um, and, you know, for, for demonstrations, especially peaceful uh, demonstrations, the police are not to even carry pepper spray, the OC spray on them. And then all of a sudden it was being deployed on the protesters. And then they changed the police policy or legislation that uh, it was allowed in this circumstance. <laughs> Um, it's a banana republic. That's how a banana republic operates. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for good reason. I mean, police shouldn't have OC spray and used on 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 demonstrators and protesters because it um, gets carried everywhere by the wind and it affects other officers get affected by it. Innocent people nearby will get affected by it. And all of those things happened. All of those things happened in Wellington and the media and the organisation, the commissioner, went along with that. At one point, it was blamed on protesters throwing an unknown substance in a, in a police officer's eyes. Um, as it turned which, out... Which, was- which, which they reported and a lot of people believed. I've, I've heard people say, but they threw things at the police. Did they? Did they um, really? Well, I mean, that case, I mean, there was a photo or footage of the police officer getting saline, getting treated in his eyes by an ambulance officer, um, flushing it out. And then the media story was that some substance was thrown by a protester. Uh, Then there was footage that we saw quite clearly a police sergeant was using pepper spray, spraying pepper spray, and a few seconds later, those police officers were 
into the shot affected holding their eyes. So, you know, it was um, blue on blue, police on police. And then that got blamed on the protesters. Just, just disgusting. What about at the end? A lot of people think that the people who were there on the last day, and again, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but it, it is a question that many people have who were watching the feeds because it was obvious that the the so-called troublemakers on the final day, well-timed with the, obviously, the police plan, let's say, looked completely different to anyone I'd ever seen there through the month, every day, religiously watching it. They were obviously different and new people on the scene. Where do they come from? Yeah, well, they, they would have come from specialist squads and the police, uh, and they, they would have come from all over uh, the police. The, so, these are the ones that had the Antifa look. I'm talking about the ones who had the Antifa, who yeah. were throwing things. Yeah. Yeah, it was certainly uh, certainly a different-looking uniform and with the, all the, the equipment, yeah, a, a different colour. Um, and that's why it makes sense that um, a lot were – it could well be the correction staff equipment um, and correction staff. Oh, um, right. Okay, I get it. Makes, yeah. yeah. It makes, makes sense. Um, so they were like acting potentially as agent provocateurs. Don't worry, I'm going to get to how you're coping now and all that sort of stuff and, and how, how's everything now, but this is fascinating. Do you think that they were agent provocateurs, much of the same way as now we're finding out about January 6th in the US, maybe even the same playbook scaled right down? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, in, in the days, well, you know, the, leading up to the final day and the, the police would, were doing that in, in terms of doing patrols around the, around the perimeter in a way that they were inviting something to happen. They were uh, antagonising protesters, wanting protesters to react so they could um, use that for their story, for what they were doing. Well, that's how it looked like it came together on that last day. It looked like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, and, what a time, um, eh? So, sorry, and, carry and on. Of course, and, of course, there were activists there and uh, people put in there to cause those issues, to, um, yeah, to inflame the situation. So it kicked off. Yeah, no, no, no question about that. Well, that's something that needs to be addressed because you just can't bloody well do that in a civilised mm. country, can you? No, no, you think not. Again, Banana Republic. I wonder if these people have any shame, do you think, when they leave their high-ranking police office at the end of the day? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I had to stop looking at the Police Association magazine because any mention of the protest um, was full of praise for the officers and how they dealt with it, um, even, uh, I think, even receiving... Um, you know, accommodations and a medal for everyone who who attended it. <laughs> I just couldn't oh, really. I couldn't uh, read that or look at look at that anymore. It's maybe what, so. what did it come in a wheat bix box? Did it or, or cornflakes? <laughs> Might as well have. Well, yeah, yeah. All right. So, what an experience, and you were there. So, wow. Okay, how was it when that court decision came down? Oh, it was it was elated. It was you know, um, it was the greatest day we had had, and the best news we'd had for, you know, the whole previous year or something. It was a shock. I, I couldn't believe it really that they'd won. You know, we were vindicated. We we were right that it shouldn't have happened. That our bill of rights was being trampled over. 
Yeah, and for police, I mean, police officers, um, the Bill of Rights Act for police officers is uh, paramount. It's, you know, every person who is arrested, detained, searched, uh, processed for drink driving, you know, et cetera, has the Bill of Rights explained to them over and over again in some cases. Um, and then all of a sudden, our you know, Bill of Rights meant nothing to police officers um, who didn't want to get vaccinated. Yeah, you'd think if anyone would know that. But what did it actually, in the end, materially mean for you? So you're elated, and not only you, I bet there are others who are elated as well. But what did it actually mean for you? Did it actually change anything? Well, I mean, pr- primarily for me, I think at that at that point, and especially the way the protest was ended so brutally by the police, um, I knew at that point I, I wasn't going to return to the police. There's no way I, I could put the uniform on again. Uh after that, but it, but it meant it meant I could resign. You yeah, know, right. I, it wasn't I, a disciplinary thing anymore. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was just right. a straight yeah. resignation. Yeah, of course. Ever since, you know, if people ask, well, I resigned from the police. I went when I wanted to go <laughs> on my terms. Um, I wasn't I wasn't sacked from the police. I wasn't terminated. So that was huge. That was huge for me. Um, Yes, did, they pay, did they pay you out on that time, though, and others? Yeah, we, we were still uh, on full pay when we All were right. suspended and stood down. So we were, we, yeah, you were going to be on full pay until the termination date, and that didn't happen. Then, well, of course, after that, thinking, well, great, what, what does this mean? Um, all those police officers who did want to go back, of course, unvaccinated police officers who did want to go back were they wanted to go back. Their mates were under the pump, under the pressure. Yet we had to wait the entire four weeks. The, the Crown had four or five weeks to decide whether they were going to appeal that decision and take it to the Supreme Court. And um, I'm sure they, they were never seriously even considering that. But for whatever reason, the Crown used the entire time, the entire four or five weeks until they finally said only a, a day or two or a few days before that deadline was up that, no, no we, we're not going to appeal the decision and police, uh, then it's over to the police to to uh, integrate the unvaccinated staff back to work. And was that done? Yeah, so, I mean, there was another uh, consultation process and, and, and meetings um, I was invited to on on what that meant and, and the reintegration process. And, you know, of course, uh, the, the Chris Carhill and the Police Association had said, well, that's that's great. We need all those cops back. <laughs> We're under the pump. We need them all back straight away. And uh, they're welcome to return. But, uh, you know, we really weren't welcome back. A condition to come back to work if you're unvaccinated, there was a form sent around, and at the very top, it was uh, headed up um, requirements for unvaccinated staff or, or something along those lines. Unvaccinated staff at the top of the form, anyway, uh, a form that you had to sign the bottom of. And you had to agree to a daily rat test, where at the time, vaccinated staff were either not doing rat tests at all, unless they had symptoms, or different districts. Of course, t- typically for the police, each district ended up doing something slightly different from the next, slightly different to the next. So they're all doing something different. 
Um, at that time, I think the norm was the vaccinated staff might have to do a rat test at the start of their working week or their, their block of four days or their block of six days. They would do a rat test on the first day and that was it, or on the Monday if they worked Monday to Friday. Yet unvaccinated staff, for, for no reason that anyone could figure out, we're, we're going to have to do a rat test daily. Also, you had to acknowledge in this form that you may not be able to return to your role because if you're if you're a frontline member, then your role would probably be um, pursuant to the the health regulations and the health vaccine mandates at the time. Because a frontline officer might have to go to into a hospital, might have to work with paramedics and ambulance officers, go to a mental health facility, rest homes, etc. So you're being told you you won't be able to carry out your role like you did before or carry out that role maybe at all while you're unvaccinated. Crazily, there, there was some mention about a 15-minute period. Um, if you're unvaccinated, you could be in a hospital or you could assist ambulance oh, really? for fifteen for up to 15 minutes. Oh, so they, they had some research that showed that that's how long it took. Oh, what a load of crap. 15. Yeah, yeah, 15 minutes. So that was it. If it was going to be more than 15 minutes, well, you, you had to excuse yourself and hopefully hopefully some vaccinated staff were <laughs> had turned up to relieve you at that point. I mean, just yeah, it's, um, it's ludicrous. It's still well, it's more than that, Tony. It's you know, Just listening to that, it's madness. It's insanity. Yeah, so it was clear to me that we weren't really welcome back and we were going to still be discriminated against and treated uh, differently and treated treated in some way like lepers because we're unvaccinated. And meanwhile, we knew all along during this period of time that people who have been vaccinated can get it as well. And, mm. well, I know I know a lot of unvaccinated people who have had nothing all this time, including me. And I know plenty of vaccinated people who have had it three, four times. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. they yeah, knew yeah, that yeah, already. Yeah, they knew that. Oh, it was absolutely, yeah, it was absolutely known and clear that um, – it didn't matter if you were vaccinated or, or not. You, you could still catch COVID. You could still uh, pass it on. Um, so what was the point of that is I, I don't know. I can, and I can, I'm cynical, but I can only think that um, the idea of that form staff were expected to sign was to um, get as many of us just to resign like I did and, and get us to leave because we had become an embarrassment to the government so, and to the, the organisation. So that was more important, covering their embarrassment, than policing the streets of New Zealand effectively. Mm. Well, we certainly, yeah, certainly weren't welcomed back. But, you know, each district was different. And as right. it turns out, staff, I mean, you know, a lot of the affected staff did return, did go back. And I heard reports that um, in some districts that form was never even mentioned. Um, in some, they, they had some pressure put on them to sign it. And, and some would have signed it. Others refused to sign it, but were still still allowed to carry on with their jobs. So, so what was the point of, if it wasn't going to be enforced, then why, why even do that? And uh, yeah, like I say, it must have just been, you know, we'll get, we'll get as many of these to, um, to go. We don't really need them or want them back, I'm sure. Okay, that's over a year ago now all this happened. So how have you been in the meantime and has, has life taken you know, a reasonable turn since then? Has it been a struggle street? Have you talked to other 
folk in your situation. How's it? How is it now? Oh, it's it's really good. Yeah, I'm in, in a good place and, and happy now. I was lucky to get um, shortly after I resigned. I uh, got a, a job uh, locally with um, you know a smallish company of 12, 14 people. You know, good management, great guys to work with. And fortunately, our, our you know we lost some good friends um, as a result of everything. But our, our closest friends, a couple of couples, were on the same page as us, and um, so we still have those relationships. Um, Did, so yeah, yeah. Did you have the family issues like a lot of us have had as well? Split up, you know, families. Yeah. Um, well, so to a well to a small extent, my. My mum, bless her, at the at the time, had said I'd, I have to get vaccinated because I had asthma as a child, mild asthma as a child, and I'll die <laughs> if I got COVID. Um, so there was that conversation. I'm, I'm probably um, probably not as close as with my with my brother and his family as as we were. Yeah, what yeah. a time! What a time! Mm. Oh, gee. Mm. But then, um, yeah, like like Matt King had said, he liked to think these things have happened for a reason, and I'm certainly. I, of course, I'm happier than I was at um, in 21 and early 22. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happier than uh, I was in my last few years of policing, anyway. And I've got more time. I, I no more shift work. I'm uh, I'm home every night and weekends with my family and my kids growing up. So yeah, I mean, I was I was uh, I was one of the fortunate ones, and that I I had a career. I had 20 years and did a few um, different things. Had a great time. Met great people. Um, and the superannuation was good, and I could I could rely on that when I left. Um, but right. the real the real um, injustice, the real travesty, is uh, all of those staff. If it was 1,700, 1,500, whatever, all of those, a lot of staff who weren't going to get vaccinated didn't want it, didn't need it. But you know, if you'd been in the job for a few months or a couple of years, and you loved policing. You've got a mortgage to pay. You've got kids to feed. I mean, you know, what were they going to do? If you, the sole, it might be the sole income earner, the primary um, income earner. You know, that's who I. Uh, that's they're the real victims, if, if you like. And certainly, I know at least one one of those who who had adverse reactions from the vaccine. I was going to ask you about that. Had you heard or seen in the groups that you, you know, you chat and have there been reports of of those? Yeah, I, I certainly know a few, and it's and it's discussed a lot. It had adverse reactions, or the um, new kind of cancer has emerged. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, just to wind up now, do you think that there should be an accountability process for this? Because, I mean, you've described basically the upper police management. They have to answer for these questions. Not only that, the military, education, health all those companies that let staff go when the outsourcing of mandates um, became a thing. Do you think there has to be some sort of, I don't know how you do it, accountability where there has to be admission of, well, an apology. We're, we're so sorry. Get on your knees, grovel, tell us you're sorry. And some sort of public apology from someone. How can we ever get beyond this if that doesn't happen, do you think? Yeah, good, good question, and uh, and of course we've all probably been told by somebody, um, you know, just move on. You know, it's all in the past, and just um, 
but I mean, yeah, how can you how can you really put it to bed if uh, if those people aren't held accountable? Uh, let's hope they are. And the um, the petition for the Royal Commission of Inquiry um, going through and those submissions hopefully will make some traction. I mean, surely they surely they can't be ignored. Yeah, but the uh, terms of reference are narrow, Tony. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. On purpose, I would say, because they do conveniently leave out a lot of what we're talking about. Mm, mm. That's not just a coincidence, I don't think. (laughs) Oh, well, look, really interesting to speak with you. Thanks for telling us your story. We really appreciate it. I think it's important that people hear what happened to people, Mm. and, and I think that's kind of one of our roles for RCR. That's one of the reasons we're here. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. So... Thank you for coming on. All the best to you and your family. And I know what you mean about things happening for a reason. I understand that. And uh, sometimes you don't realize it at the time. But when you look back, you go, oh, okay, I see. Mm, Okay. I get that from you. Well, boy, you you certainly found out who your real friends were. Um, (laughs) Hey, they're the truth. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I think, thank you, Paul. Um, Yeah, you guys are doing a great job. And um, congratulations. Keep it up. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.